Chapter Fifteen of Dodo: A Detail of the Day by E. F. Benson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. Picture to yourself, or let me try to picture for you, a long, low, rambling house covering a quite unnecessary area of ground with many gables, tall red brick chimneys, unexpected corners, and little bow windows looking out from narrow turrets. A house that looks as if it had grown rather than been designed and built. It began obviously with that little grey stone section which seems to consist of small rooms with mullein windows over which the ivy has asserted so supreme a dominion. The next occupant had been a man who knew how to make himself comfortable but did not care in the least what sort of appearance his additions would wear to the world at large. To him we may assign that uncompromising straight wing which projects to the right of the little core of grey stone. Then came a series of attempts to screen the puritanical ugliness of the offending block. Someone ran up two little turrets at one end and a clock tower in the middle. One side of it was made the main entrance of the house, and two red-tiled lines of building were built at right angles to it to form a three-sided quadrangle and the carriage drive was brought up in a wide sweep to the door, and a sundial was planted down in the grass plot in the middle, in such a way that the sun could only peep at it for an hour or two every day, owing to the line of building which sheltered it on every side except the north. So the old house went on growing, and got more incongruous and more delightful with every addition. The garden has had to take care of itself under such circumstances, and if the house has been pushing it back in one place, it has wormed itself in at another, and queer little lawns with flower beds of old-fashioned, sweet-smelling plants have crept in where you least expect them. This particular garden has always seemed to me the ideal of what a garden should be. It is made to sit in, to smoke in, to think in, to do nothing in. A wavy, irregular lawn forbids the possibility of tennis or any game that implies exertion or skill, and it is the home of sweet smells, bright colour, and chuckling birds. There are long borders of mignonette, wallflowers, and hollyhocks, and many old-fashioned flowers, which are going the way of all old fashions. London pride, with its delicate spirals and star-like blossoms, and the red drooping velvet of love lies a-bleeding. The thump of tennis balls, the flying horrors of ringgold, even the clash of croquet is tabooed in this sacred spot. Down below, indeed, beyond that thick privet hedge, you may find, if you wish, a smooth, well-kept piece of grass where, even now, if we may judge from white figures that cross the little square, where a swinging iron gate seems to remonstrate hastily and ill-temperately, with those who leave these reflective shades for the glare and publicity of tennis, a game seems to be in progress. If you had exploring tendencies in your nature, and had happened to find yourself, on the afternoon of which I propose to speak, in this delightful garden, you would sooner or later have wandered into a low-lying grassy basin, shut in on three sides by banks of bushy rose-trees. The faint, delicate smell of their pale fragrance would have led you there, or perhaps the light trickling of a fountain, now nearly summer dry. Perhaps the exploring tendency would account for your discovery. There, lying back in a basket chair, with a half-read letter in her hand, 
and an accusing tennis racket by her side, you would have found Edith Staines. She had waited after lunch to get her letters, and going out, meaning to join the others, she had found something among them that interested her, and she was reading a certain letter through a second time when you broke in upon her. After a few minutes, she folded it up, put it back in the envelope, and sat still, thinking. "'So she's going to marry him,' she said half aloud, and she took up her racket and went down to the tennis courts. Ten days ago she had come down to stay with Miss Grantham, at the end of the London season. Miss Grantham's father was a somewhat florid baronet of fifty years of age. He had six feet of height, a cheerful high-coloured face, and a moustache, which he was just conscious had military suggestions about it, though he had never been in the army, which was beginning to grow grey. His wife had been a lovely woman, half Spanish by birth, with that peculiarly crisp pronunciation that English people so seldom possess, and which is almost as charming to hear as a child's first conscious grasp of new words. She dressed remarkably well. Her reading chiefly consisted of the Morning Post, French novels, and small books of morbid poetry, which seemed to her very chic, and she was worldly to the tips of her delicate fingers. She had no accomplishments of any sort, except a great knowledge of foreign languages. She argued, with much reason, that you could get other people to do your accomplishments for you. "'Why should I worry myself with playing scales?' she said. "'I can hire some poor wretch—she never could quite manage the English R—to play to me by the hour. He will play much better than I ever should, and it is a form of charity as well.' Edith had made great friends with her, and disagreed with her on every topic under the sun. Lady Grantham admired Edith's vivacity, though her own line was serene elegance, and respected her success. Success was the one accomplishment that she really looked up to, partly perhaps because she felt she had such a large measure of it herself. And no one could deny that Edith was successful. She had enough broadness of view to admire success in any line, and would have had a vague sense of satisfaction in accepting the arm of the best crossing-sweeper in London to take her into dinner. She lived in a leonine atmosphere, and if he did not happen to meet a particular lion at her house, it was because he was here on Monday, or is coming on Wednesday. At any rate, not because he had not been asked. Edith, however, felt thoroughly pleased with her quarters. She had hinted once that she had to go the day after tomorrow, but Nora Grantham had declined to argue the question. "'You're only going home to do your music,' she said. "'We've got quite as good a piano here as you have, and we leave you entirely to your own devices. Besides, your mother's lying just now, isn't she, mother? And you're not going to get out of the menagerie just yet. There's going to be a big feeding time next week, and you'll have to roar.' Edith's remark about the necessity of going had been dictated only by a sense of duty in order to give her hosts an opportunity of getting rid of her if they wished, and she was quite content to stop. She strolled down across the lawn to the tennis courts in a thoughtful frame of mind, and met Miss Grantham, who was coming to look for her. "'Where have you been, Edith?' she said. "'They're all clamouring for you. Mother is sitting in the summer-house, wondering why anybody wants to play tennis. She says none of them will ever be as good as Cracklin, and he's a cad.' "'Granty,' said Edith, Dodo's engaged. Oh, dear, yes, said Miss Grantham. I knew she would be. How delightful. 
Jack's got his reward at last. May I tell everyone? How funny that you should marry a Lord Chesterford twice. It was so convenient that the first one shouldn't have had any brothers, and Dodo won't have to change her visiting cards, or have new handkerchiefs or anything. What a contrast, though. No, it's private at present, said Edith. Dodo has just written to me. She told me I might tell you. Do you altogether like it? Of course I do, said Miss Grantham. Only, I should like to marry Jack myself. I wonder if he asked Dodo, or if Dodo asked him. I suppose it was inevitable, said Edith. Dodo says that Chesterford's last words to her were that she should marry Jack. That was so sweet of him, murmured Miss Grantham. He was very sweet and dear and remembering, wasn't he? Edith was still grave and doubtful. I'm sure there was nearly a crash, she said. Do you remember the Breton's ball? Chesterford didn't like that, and they quarrelled, I know, next morning. Oh, how interesting, said Miss Grantham. But Dodo was quite right to go, I think. She was dreadfully bored, and she will not stand being bored. She might have done something much worse. It seems to be imperatively necessary for Dodo to do something unexpected, said Edith. I wonder, oh, I wonder. Jack will be very happy for a time, she added inconsequently. Edith's coming was the signal for serious play to begin. She entirely declined to play, except with people who considered it, for the time being, the most important thing in the world, and naturally she played well. A young man of military appearance on a small scale was sitting by Lady Grantham in the tent and entertaining her with somewhat unfledged remarks. "'Miss Staines does play so awfully well, doesn't she?' he was saying. "'Look at that stroke!' "'Perfectly ripping, you know. What?' Mr. Featherstone had a habit of finishing all his sentences with what. He pronounced it to rhyme with heart. Lady Grantham was reading Lottie's book of pity and death. It answered the double purpose of being French and morbid. "'What book have you got hold of there?' continued Featherstone. "'It's an awful bore reading books, don't you think? What?' I wish one could get a feller to read them for me, and then tell one about them. I rather enjoy some books, said Lady Grantham. This, for instance, is a good one. And she held the book towards him. Oh, that's French, isn't it? remarked Featherstone. I did French at school. Don't know a word now. It's an awful bore having to learn French, isn't it? Couldn't I get a feller to learn it for me? Lady Grantham reflected. "'I dare say you could,' she replied. "'You might get your man, Tiger, how do you call him, to learn it. It's capable of comprehension to the lowest intellect,' she added crisply. "'Oh, come, Lady Grantham,' he replied. "'You don't think so badly of me as that, do you?' Lady Grantham was seized with a momentary desire to run her parasol through his body, provided it could be done languidly and without effort. Her daughter had come up, and sat down in a low chair by her. Featherstone was devoting the whole of his great mind to the end of his moustache. "'Nora,' she said quietly, "'this little man must be taken away. I can't quite manage him. Tell him to go and play about.' "'Dear mother,' she replied, "'bear him a little longer. He can't play about by himself.' Lady Grantham got gently up from her chair and thrust an exquisite little silver paper-knife between the leaves of her book. 
I think I will ask you to take my chair across to that tree opposite, she said to him, without looking at him. He followed her, dragging the chair after him. Halfway across the lawn, they met a footman bringing tea down into the ground. Take the chair, she said. Then she turned to her little man. Many thanks. I won't detain you, she said with a sweet smile. So good of you to have come here this afternoon. Featherston was impenetrable. He lounged back, if so small a thing can be said to lounge, and sat down again by Miss Grantham. "'Fascinating woman your mother is,' he said. "'Orfully clever, isn't she? What? Knows French and that sort of thing. I can always get along all right in France. If you only swear at the waiters, they understand what you want all right, you know?' Two or three other fresh arrivals made it possible for another set to be started, and Mr. Featherston was induced to play, in spite of his protestations that he had quite given up tennis for polo. Lady Grantham finished her lottie and moved back to the tea-table, where Edith was sitting, fanning herself with a cabbage-leaf, and receiving homage on the score of her tennis-playing. Lady Grantham did not offer to give anybody any tea. She supposed they would take it when they wanted it, but she wished someone would give her a cup. "'What's the name of the little man and his moustache?' she asked Edith, indicating Mr. Featherston, who was performing wild antics in the next court. Edith informed her. "'How did he get here?' demanded Lady Grantham. "'Oh, he's a friend of mine. I think he came to see me,' replied Edith. "'He lives somewhere about. I suppose you find him rather trying. It doesn't matter. He's of no consequence.' "'My dear Edith, between your sporting curate and your German conductor and your Roman Catholic cure and this man, one's life isn't safe.' "'You won't see the good side of those sort of people,' said Edith. "'If they've got rather overwhelming manners, and aren't as silent and bored as you think young men ought to be, you think they're utter outsiders.' "'I only want to know if there are any more of that sort going to turn up. Think of the positions you put me in. When I went into the drawing-room yesterday, for instance, before lunch, I find a Roman Catholic priest there, who puts up two fingers at me and says— Benedictite. Edith lay back in her chair and laughed. How I should like to have seen you. Did you think he was saying grace, or did you tell him not to be insolent? I behaved with admirable moderation, said Lady Grantham. I even prepared to be nice to him. But he had sudden misgivings and said, I beg your pardon, I thought you were Miss Staines. I saw I was not wanted and retreated. That is not all. Bob told me that I had to take a curate in to dinner last night, and asked me not to frighten him. I suppose he thought I wanted to say bow or howl at him. The curate tried me. I sat down when we got to the table, and he turned to me and said, I beg your pardon. They all beg my pardon. But I am going to say grace. Then I prepared myself to talk night schools and district visiting, but he turned on me and asked what I thought of Orme's chances for the St. Leisure. "'Oh, dear, oh, dear!' cried Edith. "'He told me afterwards that you seemed a very serious lady.' "'I didn't intend to encourage that,' continued Lady Grantham. "'So I held on to district visiting. We shook our heads together over dissent in Wales. We split over Calvinism.' 
Who was Calvin? We renounced society, and I was going to work him a pair of slippers. We were very edifying. Then he sang comic songs in the drawing-room and discussed the methods of cheating at Baccarat. I was a dead failure. Anyhow, you're a serious lady, said Edith. That young man will come to a bad end, said Lady Grantham. So will your German conductor. He ordered beer in the middle of the morning, today. The second footman will certainly give notice. And he smoked a little clay pipe after dinner in the dining-room. Then this afternoon comes this other friend of yours. He says, awfully ribbon, what? He said you were awfully fascinating, what? interpolated Miss Grantham, when you went away to read your book. You're very rude to him. Sir Robert Grantham had joined the party. He was a great hand at adapting his conversation to his audience and making everyone conscious that they ought to feel quite at home. He recounted at some length a series of tennis matches which he had taken part in a few years ago. A strained elbow had spoiled his chances of winning, but the games were most exciting, and it was generally agreed at the time that the form of the players was quite first class. He talked about Wagner and counterpoint to Edith. He asked his vicar abstruse questions on the evidence of the immortality of the soul after death. He discussed agriculture and farming with tenants, to whom he always said thank you instead of thank you, in order that they might feel quite at their ease. He lamented the want of physique in the English army to Mr. Featherstone, who was very short, and declared that the average height of Englishmen was only five feet four. As he said this, he drew himself up, and made it quite obvious that he himself was six feet high, and broad in proportion. A few more cups of tea were drunk, and a few more sets played, and the party dispersed. Edith was the only guest in the house, and she and Frank, the Oxford son, stopped behind to play a game or two more before dinner. Lady Grantham and Nora strolled up through the garden towards the house, while Sir Robert remained on the ground and mingled advice, criticism, and approbation to the tennis players. Frank's backhanded stroke, he thought, was not as good as it might be, and Edith could certainly put half-fifteen onto her game if judiciously coached. Neither of the players volleyed as well as himself, but volleying was his strong point, and they must not be discouraged. Frank's attitude to his father was that of undisguised amusement, but he found him very entertaining. They were all rather late for dinner, and Lady Grantham was waiting for them in the drawing-room. Frank and his father were down before Edith, and Lady Grantham was making remarks on their personal appearance. "'You look very hot and red,' she was saying to her son. "'and I really wish you would brush your hair better. "'I don't know what young men are coming to. "'They seem to think that everything is to be kept waiting for them.' "'Frank's attitude was one of serene indifference. "'Go on, go on,' he said. "'I don't mind.' "'Edith was five minutes later. "'Lady Grantham remarked on the importance of being in time for dinner "'and hoped they wouldn't all die from going to bed too soon afterwards. "'Frank apologised for his mother.' "'Don't mind her, Miss Staines,' he said. "'They're only her foreign manners. "'She doesn't know how to behave. "'It's all right. "'I'm going to take you in, Mother. "'Are we going to have grouse?' "'That evening Miss Grantham and Edith "'talked Dodo, as the latter called it, "'till the small hours. "'She produced Dodo's letters and read extracts. "'Of course, we shan't be married "'till after next November,' wrote Dodo. "'Jack wouldn't hear of it, "'and it would seem very unfeeling, "'don't you think so?' 
It will be odd going back to Winston again. Mind you come and stay with us at Easter. I wonder if Dodo ever thinks with regret of anything or anybody, said Edith. Imagine writing like that, asking me if I shouldn't think it unfeeling. Oh, but she says she would think it unfeeling, said Miss Grantham. That's so sweet and remembering of her. But don't you see, said Edith, she evidently thinks it is so good of her to have feelings about it at all. She might as well call attention to the fact that she always puts her shoes and stockings on to go to church. There's a lot of women who would marry again before a year was out if it wasn't for convention, said Miss Grantham. That's probably the case with Dodo, remarked Edith. Dodo doesn't care one pin for the memory of that man. She knows it, and she knows I know it. Why does she say that sort of thing to me? He was a good man, too, and I'm not sure that he wasn't great. Chesterford detested me, but I recognized him. Oh, I don't think he was great, said Miss Grantham. Didn't he always strike you as a little stupid? I prefer stupid people, declared Edith roundly. They're so restful. They're like nice, sweet white bread. They quench your hunger as well as pâté de foie gras, and they're much better for you. I think they make you just a little thirsty, remarked Miss Grantham. I should have said they were more like cracknels. Besides, do you think that it's an advantage to associate with people who are good for you? It produces a sort of rabies in me. I want to bite them. You like making yourself out worse than you are, Granty, said Edith. I think you like making Dodo out worse than she is, returned Nora. I always used to think you were very fond of her. I am fond of her said Edith. That's why I'm dissatisfied with her. What a curious way of showing your affection, said Miss Grantham. I love Dodo, and if I was a man, I should like to marry her. Dodo is too dramatic, said Edith. She never gets off the stage, and sometimes she plays to the gallery, and then the stalls say, how cheap she's making herself. There's the elements of a low comedian about her. And the airs of a tragedy queen, I suppose, added Miss Grantham. Exactly said Edith, and the consequence is that she is as a burlesque sometimes. She is her own parody. Darling Dodo, said Granty with feeling, I do want to see her again. All her conduct after his death, continued Edith, that was the tragedy queen. She shut herself up in that great house quite alone for two months and went to church with a large prayer book every morning at eight. But it was burlesque all the same. Dodo isn't sorry like that. The gallery yelled with applause. I thought it was so sweet of her, murmured Granty. I suppose I'm gallery too. Then she went abroad, continued Edith, and sat down and wept by the waters of Aeth. But she soon took down her harp. She gave banjo parties on the lake and sang coster songs. Mrs. Vane told me she recovered her spirits wonderfully at Aeth, remarked Miss Grantham, and played baccarat and recovered other people's money, pursued Edith. If she'd taken the first train for eggs after the funeral, I should have respected her. Oh, that would have been horrid, said Miss Grantham. Besides, it wouldn't have been the season. That's true, said Edith. Dodo probably remembered that. Oh, you shan't abuse Dodo any more, said Miss Grantham. I think it's perfectly horrid of you. Go and play me something. Perhaps the thought of Chesterford was in Edith's mind as she sat down to the piano, for she played a piece of Mozart's Requiem, which is the saddest music in the world. Miss Grantham shivered a little. 
The long, wailing notes struck some chord within her, which disturbed her peace of mind. "'What a dismal thing!' she said, when Edith had finished. "'You make me feel like Sunday evening after a country church.' Edith stood looking out of the window. The moon was up, and the great stars were wheeling in their courses through the infinite vault. A nightingale was singing loud in the trees, and little mysterious noises of night stole about among the bushes. As Edith thought of Chesterford, she remembered how the Greeks mistook the passionate song of the bird for the lament of the dead, and it did not seem strange to her. For love sometimes goes hand in hand with death. She turned back into the room again. "'God forgive her,' she said, "'if we cannot.' "'I'm not going to bed with that requiem in my ears,' said Miss Grantham. "'I should dream of hearses.' Edith went to the piano and broke into a quick, rippling movement. Miss Grantham listened and felt she ought to know what it was. "'What is it?' she said, when Edith had finished. "'It's a scherzo from the Dodo Symphony,' she said. "'I composed it two years ago at Winston.' End of chapter 15